right, why don't we, um, we're going to shift gears now. We're going to get into uh, this morning's message. Uh, if you guys are new here, what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Galatians, and Galatians is this great book that we're going to be wrapping up in about two more weeks, and then we're going to be completely done with that, and then we'll be getting into a study throughout the summer, or at least maybe six to seven weeks or so of the summer, taking a look at the book of Ruth. And uh, so the book of Galatians was this book that Paul the Apostle wrote to a group of Christians that lived in this region called Galatia. And these are people that started out uh, loving Jesus. Their lives were transformed by Jesus. And then what had happened was, what oftentimes can happen to all of us, is that they can easily be pulled away from Jesus into all sorts of alternatives. For some of us, we can be pulled away into various forms of sin. Um, Or there's other ways in which we can be pulled away in terms of religious moralism. In the case of the Galatian people... Uh, the way that they got pulled away from Jesus was not into sin, was not into some form of evil or idolatry, things of that nature. It was actually far less um, noticeable, and it was sort of a new form of religion. And even though they still held on to Jesus, even though they claimed to be a follower of Christ, what had happened was they were basically living according to this rule or this idea or concept that was we live for Jesus plus we do these other things. And in the case of the Galatian people, they were living for Jesus plus they were adding to their Christianity a form of becoming righteous or made right with God by becoming circumcised and living according to the law of Moses. And we've said throughout the whole series that really at the end of the day, we have our own types of equivalents in our modern culture where we say you need Jesus plus you've got to be out sharing the faith. Or you need Jesus plus you need to be going to lots of prayer meetings. Or you need Jesus plus and you've got to be reading your Bible every single day. And again, we've been trying to also combat this idea of saying there's nothing wrong with sharing the gospel. You should be doing that. There's nothing wrong with prayer meetings and praying. We should be doing that. There's nothing wrong with reading our Bible. We should be doing that. But if our motivation to do those things is somehow linked to us trying to get God to like us, trying to get God to love us or care for us, or somehow looking at ourselves as being made right with God because we're Christians and we do those things, then Paul's going to speak to us and say, you're trying to become perfected by fleshly means. In other words, you're walking away from Jesus. You're not just simply adding things to your Christian walk, you're actually subtracting from the gospel. You understand that? You're diminishing from the glory and the beauty of what Jesus did. If somehow you can improve upon that, somehow you can add to the beauty of the gospel, then the gospel would not be all sufficient. When Paul's going to tell us the exact opposite, what God did for us on the cross through Jesus is all sufficient. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to subtract from it. What we need to do is just simply trust it, to trust what God did. And when that happens, we'll want to read our Bibles because we want to see Jesus. We'll want to pray because we want to be with Jesus and be with his people. We'll want to hang out in fellowship. We'll want to tell people about Jesus because he's a wonderful savior. Does that make sense? So how we're motivated to do, to do these things either leads us to more bondage or is birthed out of freedom. It's a big difference. In fact, I would even go so far as to say it's what separates man-made religion from the gospel. Man-made religion is us trying to do something to get God to have favor upon us or to get God to like us. When the gospel is something that God did already for us on our behalf, what we didn't deserve to demonstrate favor and kindness to us. That's what the gospel is. It's an announcement of what God's done already for you. That's the beauty of the gospel. You can't add to it. You can't subtract to it. We just got to believe it. So Paul's going to write to this group of people saying, Be careful about walking away from Jesus, but now he's going to be sort of finalizing his thoughts and ideas in chapter 6, which is where we're at, and trying to bring to light, if the gospel's in your life, there will be certain implications, certain ways in which you will live. You'll do certain things. You'll be aware of certain things. You'll watch out for certain other things that actually might get you back into enslavement. So the purpose of a Christian, or what the goal of a Christian is now that they're saved, their life is going to look differently. They're going to act differently. 
They're going to think differently, and they're going to treat each other differently. So Paul's going to now begin to lay out for us a series of ideas. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to pick it up around verse 7. We'll read down to about verse 9, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. So verse 7 says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh Love is flesh, reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So God, we ask you right now that you would just help us to understand what your word speaking to us. God, we need your Spirit and your presence to be able to open our eyes, and we realize, Lord, apart from your Spirit speaking to us and opening our eyes, all, all this would be would just be merely a Bible study. It'd be like a lecture. Not that that would not have no value at all, but God, we want more than that. We don't want just simply a lecture. We don't want just simply a Bible study. We don't want to simply memorize certain key biblical truths and try our best to try to live according to these things. God, we want Jesus. We want this text to be able to point us to Jesus, to lead us to Jesus who saves us who washes us, who delivers us from our sin. So God, I pray right now that you'd help us to discover Jesus in this passage. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's going to address this whole larger issue or subject that we would typically call the law of sowing and reaping. This idea of sowing and reaping is sort of a predominant theme throughout the Bible, a theme throughout the Bible. I mean, even in the book of Job, there's a verse that actually talks about this very law at work. And it's something that is most preeminently identified through nature. I mean, for example, if you sow a cantaloupe seed, you're going to get a cantaloupe. Sow a watermelon seed, you get a watermelon. You don't get a cucumber. You know what I'm saying? This is idea that what you sow, what you plant, whatever seed that is, you will also get whatever is part of that. I mean, some of you are like, you're like, that's true. I know that you're like nudging the person next to you. You're like, that's really true. I saw that. Yeah, it is true. It's exactly true. The Bible's going to say that this principle in nature, you're like, I went to public school and I know that's true. And the point of the matter is, is that this is a principle that we see in nature. But Paul's also going to say that this is a principle that's also carried over into kind of a spiritual realm as well. So that if in your life you sow things in this world, in your life, certain attitudes and concepts and ideas and you sow those things in your life, you live them out, you do them, what will ultimately end up happening is you will then reap whatever that is. So if, for example, you're a kind person, you're nice, you help people, you're always trying to help people, that somehow people will remember that perhaps, and they will be kind to you. If you're a jerk and you're rude, you don't pay your bills on time, you mistreat people, you're just, you kind of have a bad attitude, what will end up happening is people will Often, oftentimes pay back the way that you respond and the way that you act. Remember this? We had, uh, there's, a, there's a lady that my wife and I had known a while back. She was just not a happy lady. Everything in her life, she was just miserable. Everything about her, every time you talk to her, it was always something negative. And what ends up happening, oftentimes people like that, they get to a place in their life and they're very lonely. So sometimes we look at situations and circumstances in our lives, and we look at it and we think, well, gosh, why am I so lonely? Well, the reason why you're lonely is because you've been sowing seeds in your life, perhaps, that have been very arrogant. The reason why you've been sowing those seeds, those arrogant seeds, has some point led down the road where now you don't have any friends left. Or if you are in debt, the reason why you're in debt is because you've been sowing seeds that oftentimes might even be connected to greediness. You desire something, you long for something, and you're a slave to that. So what you sow in your life today, tomorrow you will reap, or at some point down the road. It's a materialistic principle that's in this world, but it's also a principle that we see even in a spiritual realm in our lives. So Paul's going to tap into this concept, and he's going to say, listen, if you understand what God's doing, you will realize that this principle of Reaping what you sow is always at work. And so what he's going to urge now are the believers. So if you're a Christian, make sure that you understand that you sow carefully. Paul's actually writing to believers. So what he's saying here is that even Christians can sow to the flesh. Even though you're set free from the sinful demands of the flesh, you can still sow actions and attitudes and ideas and sinful deeds and habits to the flesh the world in which we live in, and that you will reap from those things. So the reality is, is you can be a Christian, 
You can even love Jesus, and you can make a really bad, lousy move one day in your life, and then you will end up paying for that. Let's say you're drunk drive. It's not a sin to drink. It's a sin to drink too much. It's a sin to get drunk. If you drink too much, you hop in your car, you get into a car accident, you get arrested, you will reap what you sow. It's because you sowed to the flesh, you sowed something into the flesh, and then you pay the consequence of that. That's just the way that we live. It's the way this world operates. And so Paul's trying to make sort of a spiritual application here. It says it's the same that's true in our own lives. So the point of the matter is, is there are at least three different ways that scholars, theologians, have tried to understand this particular text, all right? There's at least three particular ways. I'll throw them all out for you guys. You can chew on them, think about them. But here's the first one. The first way that oftentimes scholars, some theologians, have tried to understand what is this referring to is oftentimes some scholars have looked at this and thought that it's in reference to uh, generosity, finances, giving money, things of that nature. The reason why they would draw the conclusion is because Paul just got finished talking about, just prior to this, around verse Verse 6, he says, the one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who also teaches. And later on, he finishes around verse 10. So then that we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And in between those two verses, showing good, doing good, showing generosity is this phrase, you reap what you sow. So some scholars have thought that if you have people in your life and they're pouring themselves out for you and they're uh, preaching the gospel to you, This could be a pastor, this could be a Christian, somebody in your life who's taking you back to God, all in connection with chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, look, if somebody's caught in sin, if a Christian comes alongside, our job is to want to help people, not kick them when they're down. When somebody's stuck in sin, our job is to want to try to help them. So if your job is to help them, and you use the word of God to help them, what Paul's going to say, like I said in verse 6, you know, show some sort of kindness to them. Give generously back to them. For example, if you have somebody in your life who's pouring into your life on a regular basis, they're taking time out of their busy schedule, they're hanging out with you, discipling you, pouring their lives out for you, and look at it this way as an opportunity for you to bless them. If you're going out to coffee with you all the time, maybe bless them with a cup of coffee. If they're taking you out to lunch, bless them by buying them lunch. Figure out ways, find ways to show generosity to them because they've been showing great generosity to you. So some, like I said, scholars would look at it this way, that this is what Paul perhaps is referring to. Uh, Now the reason why they would think that is because on a larger scale, uh, Paul also uses this metaphor in other passages in the New Testament that are connected with this law, this concept, this idea of sowing and reaping. Here's one, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things? So what Paul is trying to do is he's speaking to this group of Christians in the area of Corinth, and he says, look, um, if the pastor's among you and he's sowing spiritual things among you, he's helping you guys out, uh, you guys, it's a good responsibility for you guys to take care of him materially. Make sure he's got a paycheck, make sure he's got food in his mouth, make sure he's got a place to lay his head at night. Now, again, let me just say this real quick. I'm not in any way suggesting give more to the pastor. I'm very well taken care of. Thank you. You guys are already a very generous church as well as it is. So this is not me preaching somehow selfishly to somehow get more at all, at all. It's not even my motivation. But my point is to say, this is what some scholars would look at, and I think it's probably very viable. And Paul does make an outline of this fact that if there are people in your life, pastors in your life, leaders in your life who are bringing you to God's word, take care of them financially. Help them out. Make sure that they're well taken care of. So Paul's going to say that. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 12, he's also going to use this analogy in this particular text. And again, in light of this idea of generosity. You sow little, you reap little. You sow a lot, you reap a lot. That's at least the theory that Paul is trying to convey. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give an account as he has decided, or each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So what Paul is saying, I'll pause there for a second. He's talking to this group of Christians that are about ready to give. And Paul's saying, now look, 
it's good for you guys to give generously. You give generously, God has a way of also giving back to you. Now, again, a lot of people love taking verses like this and abusing it. They love. This is like a favorite for televangelists, all right? This is like, there's like no other verses that even exist in the Bible except this one. God just wants you to sow seed, right? That's what you hear all the time. It's crazy. There's this dude, I don't even know what his name is. Every once in a while when I'm sitting down watching TV, I'll turn on television. I don't know why I do this, but sometimes I wander off to the Christian channels. I repent later, but sometimes I even do this. And this one dude, every single time, I swear to God, every, it's the verse. This, this is the verse he always preaches. I'm like, you're kidding me. There's a huge book on your lap. There's a lot of verses in it, and that's the only verse you preach of? Like, so generously, God will give generously. It's like, gosh, it's unbelievable. Like, this guy's got a nice, you know, anyways, I'm not even going to go there. But the point of the matter is this. This verse is, is a favorite among people that love to abuse it to somehow get money back or to somehow use it as a means to get a nice jet or whatever it is that they want to do. So that's not what I'm talking about here. But the point of the matter is, is Paul's going to say, look, those who sow sparingly, those who are not very generous, uh, you won't get as much, but those who are very generous, those who look at their life as a means of being able to give back to God, God has a way of taking care of you. God has a way of taking care of you. He loves us. You can't outgive God, I think is what he's trying to say. You can't outgive God. God has this ability of always being able to give back to us, to bless us. So that's what Paul is trying to say to this group of people in Corinth. And he goes on and say, don't give out a compulsion. Don't, be, don't give because the pastor begged you to give. Don't give because someone made you feel guilty or bad or somehow, you know, made you feel horrible about not giving. So therefore you gave because you just wanted to be nice and, you know, kind of fall in compliance with the rest of the way the church is. Paul said, don't give like that. Give cheerfully. Why? Because God never gives out of compulsion. I mean, God wasn't like, fine, I'll give my son, whatever. You guys don't deserve it. I ain't too into you. All you guys do is complain. You gripe. You mess up my earth. All right? I don't like what you do, but I'll fine. I will give my son because it's what I got to do. That's what God does. All right? That's it. That's all God gives. God gave cheerfully. All right? That's how God gives. God so loved the world. God is driven by love to give. He's a giving God. He's a generous God by very nature of who he is. So Paul's saying, look, if we're being transformed into the image of Christ, then the way that's going to work itself out in our life is that we will end up looking like God in the way that we give. In the way that we sow, we will reap in proportion to what we sow. So he's going to go on to say this. He's going to quote from Psalm 112. He's going to say this. He has distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So here's what I think Paul's trying to say. Is that God is actually looking for generosity in the lives of his renewed people. Why? Because God's a generous God. It makes sense for God to look for characteristics that really display him in the lives of his people. And God goes so far as to say, look, I even provide to you the seed that you sow. That's what he says. So if you got seed in your hand and you sow it, it's God who gave it to you. Let me give an example on a very practical level. Because some of you look at your life and you're like, you've got stuff that you give, stuff that you have. Well, where did you get that from? God gave it to you. Some of you who had just graduated, how did you even get into Cal Poly? God designed for you to get into Cal Poly. Like, no, it's my brain. Well, who gave you the brain? Right? God gave you everything you have. If you've got a good business, it's prospering. God gave it to you. He gave you the ability to have some sort of business mind, business sense He gave you the ability to be creative. He gave you the ability to be entrepreneurial. All of those things are gifts from God. I mean, I hope we realize that. And one of the evidences that God's trying to say is that my children who love me, my children who get the gospel and who have been gotten by the gospel, they live with a very clear understanding that everything they have in their life has been given to them free of charge by me. And therefore, they realize it's an opportunity to give back to God by giving back to other people. One of the surest evidences to show 
in our lives that God's God and money's not is that we can give it away. I mean, money's one of those things that people freak out when you start talking about it. They don't want to talk about money. Talk about the wallet. Talk about money that's in your bank account. People kind of feel like you're, you're prying into their life. Because at the end of the day, the reason why is because there are idols attached to it that are being exposed. Let me give you an example. If money is your God, it will control you. I'll give you an example. So for some of you, you might be like, I don't have any money, so therefore it's not my God. But let me ask you, you can be poor if you're poor and all you think about is somehow freedom and liberation and help will actually come as a result of getting money. So you pay lots of money, large sum of money to get lottery tickets somehow so that you can get salvation. So in your mind, even though you have no money, you wish you had money because the money that you wish that you had will somehow save you. If you're rich, on the other hand, flip the coin around, no pun intended. On the other side, if you're rich, if you're rich, you live your life, if money's your God, in such a way where you will protect it. You'll never give it away. You'll be stingy with it. You refuse to let even anybody even ask you about it because you don't want your money to go away. It is your God. The clearest way of identifying whether or not money is God or Jesus is God is that you can gladly walk away from money and joyfully give it away to those that are in need. It's really hard. You know why? We live in America. The number one idol in America is money. We worship money, all right? Some Christians freak out. They're like, we shouldn't even say in God we trust. I just look at that and like, the God we're trusting in is written there on the very dollar that we worship. We worship money. We hoard money. And if we don't have money, we wish we had money that we can hoard. It's an idol. It's a God. And the surest way to define or to really to identify, to demonstrate that money is not our God is that we're fully free to give it away. Happily. <laughs> All right? Because some of you might be like, well, I give it away. But grudgingly, that means it's your God. You're, having, you're feeling really sad because you're parting from your God. Nobody wants to give up their God. Our gods are what help us. Why would we want to walk away from our God? But when Jesus is our God, we can actually just give stuff away. We can serve other people. We can help those that are in need. When needs get raised up, we're like, gosh, I want to help because God's God. Money's not. Money is a vehicle. It's a means to worship my God. It's not my God. I don't bend my knee at my God. That's money. I bend my knee to the living God who supplies me with money to give back to God, to give back to people, to help those that are in need. That's what I think Paul is trying to say. So if I recognize that idea of generosity and I sow generously, I will receive generously. If I sow sparingly, I will receive sparingly. So that's the first way in which I think Paul may be referring to this idea of sowing and reaping possible. The second way to look at it, and there's no doubt in my mind, Paul has it in his mind, because again, like I said, he's already written about this principle of sowing and reaping in conjunction with this idea of giving money, generosity, serving other people, helping other people with the money that we have. The second way, which I think Paul might be referring to this, obviously, is in pertain, as it pertains to this idea of the flesh, uh, one's sinful desires. Here's what he's going to say again. Listen to this. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So he's going to go on to say, if, I, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. All right? So Paul's going to say, first and foremost, don't be deceived. In the actual original Greek, it basically means stop being deceived. The implication is that we are deceived. The implication is somehow is that we've deceived ourselves thinking that I can sow to the flesh, I can do fleshly things, and somehow earn a bumper crop of righteousness. Paul's saying you can't. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in nature. You don't plant a bunch of watermelon seeds and then get steak. I mean, it just doesn't work that way, you know? Wish it was. Wish you can get bacon from seeds, but you can't. But the point of the matter is you, you've, you've got to realize that that's the way the law works in nature, but the way it works in the spiritual realm is the same. You can't sow unrighteousness and live in an unrighteous 
fashion and somehow expect to get righteousness working forth in your life. So Paul's going to say, don't be deceived. That means that we are deceived. If we think that we can live in sin in such a way, somehow bring in righteousness. So now let me, I'm going to try to define for you guys in a second here, just what sin is or what does it mean to sow to the flesh? Because here's the problem I think oftentimes we end up having is that religious people love to hijack this phrase, sin. They love it. Religious moralists love this phrase, sin, and they love to exploit it. And here's what they do. They say, here, I'll give you the list of sins. So these are the big sins, all right? Cussing's a sin. Homosexuality's a sin. Getting drunk in public's a sin. Liking country music's a sin. And they just give this big laundry list of all of these things that they were going to identify for you as sin. And here's the problem with that. Is for, for one, that list is far inferior to the list that God throws down. Because you never see on that list gluttony. I mean, you never see on that list like bad attitude. You never see on that list, you know, criticalness. You never see on that list, you know, bad, you know, just bitterness, hatred, anger. You don't ever see on those lists those things. So here's our problem. We actually make ourselves feel better by somehow shortening the list. Be like, ah, that's my stuff is not on that list. My junk's not on that list. I must be doing really good. But here's what Paul's going to say: Is no, no, no. You've got to, you got to get a grip on what God's looking at when He looks at sin. So Paul's going to say, if you sow to the sinful desires, then you will reap of the sinful desires destruction. Bible is going to say corruption. The word corruption is used in a lot of different ways. Um, don't necessarily jump to the eternal sense of corruption yet because it can mean that. If anything, it sets you on a trajectory where it will get to that. But before it gets to that, it will bring about breakdown and destruction in your life, corruption. The only thing that will save you from the ultimate sense of corruption is a deliverer. That's it. The only thing that will save you from the corruption that's temporary in this life is, again, a deliverer. We need Jesus. So here's what Paul's going to say, because Paul's using this phrase, uh, flesh, kind of harkens us back to what he talks about in chapter 5, where he's going to say this. I'll read it to you, so just kind of refresh your minds. Verse 16 in chapter 5, he says, but if we walk by the Spirit... We will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, and these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and here's what he gives, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things of this like. He says, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In a very similar fashion, Paul, just a few verses later, says, I'm going to warn you again, don't be foolish. Don't think you can't do these things and live according to these things and somehow and reap righteousness in your life. You can't. So Paul's saying. So there's basically at least three different ways which I would identify this. First of all, the idea of impure thoughts. Now this, again, can kind of correspond to what Paul is going to talk about with sensuality, sexual deviations, and things of that nature. The reality is, is that you can't somehow just think that you can feast your mind on all sorts of sexual impurities and that it won't affect you. I talk to Christian guys all the time. I remember reading a stat, I don't know how accurate it is, that somewhere between the ages of 10 to 12 and to somewhere around age 23 is the number of boys, is the number one usage of online porn. Somewhere, I think, maybe in the 70 or so plus percentile range. I could be off a little bit, but if my memory serves me correctly, that was around the issue. My point is this is that most of the people that I talk to don't see anything wrong with that. I talk to, and I've discovered, even found out, there's a lot of women that have the same types of issues. Not to the same degree as men, but still struggle with the same things. And the thought of the matter is, is that guys, for example, who just feast their minds and understanding about what a woman is in terms of a pornographic sense, if that's the way that they view a woman... And that's the way that it's putting before their eyes what a woman looks like and acts like and does. That does taint. That does affect. That does bring corruption into your life in terms of relationships. Because one day, the man will end up getting a girlfriend. And he will then begin to look at that girl through this lens by which he's trained himself to view women. 
it does affect Talk with married couples who end up in somewhere, there, there are all sorts of expectations not being lived out. You come to find out that oftentimes it's because they've been planted there, set there, sown there by all sorts of false notions based upon impure thoughts. So yes, it does matter how you view other people in terms of human beings and sexuality. It does affect that. That's why Paul's going to lay that out. The second thing is nurturing grudges. He's going to talk about things like anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy. And this is the idea of like nurturing grudges. And one of the ways and oftentimes we sow to the flesh is we just sort of nurture these things. We justify ourselves. We're like, they deserve to get my wrath because they did me wrong. And if that's the way that you think, if that's the way that you treat people, that does affect everything in your life. And I'll tell you why in a second here. A third one is this, religious moralism. It's kind of a phrase that I've used a lot. It's just this idea of taking religious concepts and ideas that have sort of a spin of Jesus in it. It looks Christian, tastes Christian, even acts Christian, has a certain type of morality that you would look at and think, oh, it must be Christian. I mean, they must be Christian. They have a fish on their back of their car, or they wear a weird Christian t-shirt. You know, I mean, there are certain things we look at, they're like, oh, they must be a Christian. They go to higher grounds coffee. Like, they've got to be a Christian, right? I mean, we have all these, like, really weird, silly standards by which we're like, oh, they must be a Christian. I've never heard them cuss, so it must be a Christian. My dog doesn't cuss. All right? My point is, that was a stupid joke, but my point of the matter is that we, we really have all these weird, funky standards by which we try to determine who's a Christian, who's not. Here's what Paul is trying to say, is that if you have this mentality in your mind where you look at what you do, and as good as you're trying to be, and you think that that's the standard whereby God's going to accept you, then you will begin to look at other people with contempt. This was exactly what was happening in the church in Galatia. It was religious moralism. The sin that the people were in danger of falling into, the idolatry they were in danger of basically being overtaken by, the flesh to which they were sowing was this, religious moralism. In this case, it was all about the law of Moses. They were taking these antiquated laws, laws that have been outdated and saying, real Christians, hardcore Christians, serious Christians, they live according to these standards, live according to these laws. Well, what about the ones that don't get circumcised? Well, that's interesting because what happened in the church there was the people that didn't get circumcised for whatever reason, they got shunned. They got marked. They got knocked down. They got judged. This is exactly what Paul earlier in Galatians chapter 5 said this around verse 13. He says, For we were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I read that, and here's what I come to this conclusion, is that because of the religious moralism that these people in this church were sowing to in their heart, the fruit was biting and devouring one another. Have you ever been in that church? Have you ever been there? Have you ever met that Christian that just looks at everybody else around them with contempt because they're not reading their Bible enough, they're not praying enough, they're not speaking in tongues, They're not worshiping the way that they would like you to worship. You're not as passionate about Jesus the way they're as passionate about Jesus. They've been around that person. You love hanging out with that person. They're horrible. That that person is so difficult to be around because you know why? You always walk away from that, not encouraged, but radically discouraged. You always walk away and you feel like you're you're not a Christian. Maybe you don't even really love God. Because after all, they're doing all this stuff. That is a form of religious moralism. That if a person sows to that, sows that in their life, and they become arrogant and prideful, and they begin to look at these things as means by which God accepts them. That leads to sort of an atmosphere of biting and devouring one another. Paul says, no. The atmosphere that should define the church is love. Where people are willing to lay their lives down for each other. When there's a need, someone's willing to answer that need. When there's financial needs, many people are willing to raise their hands and say, I'm going to jump to that and try to help and serve and be part of the solution. 
Paul says, that's how the church should operate. But when religious moralism becomes what we sow to in our lives, everything falls apart. That's why church splits so oftentimes happen. That's why sometimes older generation saints get so frustrated because in their mind what's happened is a standard, a rule, a method that was once employed years ago becomes sacred. It becomes a sacred thing that they refuse to let go of. We're not talking about the gospel. We're talking about methods. It becomes refused to let go of this thing. It becomes a standard. We must fight to hold on to it. It's exactly what happened. So you have all sorts of biting and devouring each other. Paul says you cannot be deceived. You should not be deceived. You cannot sow to the flesh and somehow expect to reap righteousness. You can't do that. I hope you understand clearly proper definition of sin. Here's what 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 says. I think it's an excellent definition of what sin is. He says these people, these are self-righteous people preaching in the church. They had them back then too. He says, they promise freedom, but they themselves are actually slaves to corruption. And he summarizes with this statement, for whatever overcomes a person to that, he's enslaved. Do you hear that? Has that been your definition of sin? Whatever overcomes you, that's what you're a slave to? And if you read Galatians, you clearly understand that really God's objective, God's goal, God's purpose, God's mission statement and sending Jesus into this world was actually to set you free, to set you free from false ideas, false notions, to set you free from the worship of mammon, the money God, to set you free from bitterness and anger. Let me give an example of how you're not free. If you're here today, and let's say you're bitter, you are embittered with somebody. Maybe they did something against you, maybe they sinned against you, and you are embittered to that, against that person. Do you know that you're not free to actually take that person out to dinner and sit down with them and bless them? You're not. You can't do that. I mean, think about it. Could you? Could you actually take that person out to dinner and sit down and hang out with them? Bless them? Could you offer to, like, you know, wash the car? Offer to give them 100 bucks just to bless them? Like, you hurt me. You wounded me. But you know what? I'm going to bless you. Can you do that? That's exactly what the Bible is going to say. That's what freedom looks like. Freedom is the ability to not be bound by bitters, not be bound by sinful proclivities, not be bound by money, not be bound by attitudes, not be bound by false doctrinal concepts and understandings, but to be set free so that we can love each other, serve one another, lay our lives down for one another. I know people that are actually bound by religious, false religious notions that in their mind, they're like, I can't get involved in the church. I refuse to get involved in the church. I refuse to enter in the joy of people being saved in the church because they have these false religious concepts that keep them suppressed and oppressed and bound. Is that you? You just can't enter into joy. You can't sit down with somebody that's broken, that's hurting, that's poor, that's marginalized. That was the issue with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They couldn't even fathom sitting down with a prostitute, having lunch with her. Jesus did. They couldn't. Because they thought, ah, we'll become defiled. They were bound by their sense of cleanliness. And it wasn't even God's standard of cleanliness. It was far inferior to God. But they were bound. They could not even go outside of themselves to demonstrate love to a woman who was hurting. Is that you? Please understand, just like what Peter said. He says, for whatever overcomes a person to that they're enslaved. Please understand, Jesus seeks to rescue and free. Some of you guys are familiar with this quote. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. In other words, our choices, what we do, how we choose to sow our lives, what we sow in our lives will ultimately seal our fate. Do you understand that? That's the direction we're going. The problem is is that every single one of us, we don't sow in righteousness. We don't. We don't have righteousness in ourselves to sow. So the last thing is this. Sowing and reaping in terms of pertaining to the spirit of God is really this idea that he's going to tell us that even though sowing and reaping may pertain to financial giving away goods, being generous with 
the church, generous with people, generous with others, finding a family church, a home church that you're part of, and being generous and giving to that so that the gospel can go out. The more you're able to generously give, the more that they're able to kind of expand and grow and see the gospel go out. The more they're capable and able to be able to give and to provide training and establishing training for a church. That's where we're at. We want to be able to do more of that. I mean, think about the people that stood up, how exciting that is to be able to pray for them and send them out in this world. Honestly, we would love to see more people. We would love to be able to send more people out. We would love to give more money out to people that are going out in this world. But the question is, where does that come from? It comes from the generosity of people that call this the church, that join a mission, that give generously like God gave generously to them. That's it. The second thing that we saw is that this sowing and reaping law also has to do with what we sow in terms of the flesh. The final one is it has to do with what we sow and how we sow to the spirit. James writes about this in chapter 3, James 3. He says this, who is wise and understanding among you by the good conduct? Let him show his works of meekness and wisdom. He's going to say, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast, be false against the truth. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will also be disorder in every vile practice. James is to the point. He's basically like this. Look. You call yourself a Christian, you claim to know the Bible, you claim to understand certain spiritual truths. It doesn't matter what your religious experience was in the past, but if you claim to follow this, but you've got bitterness in your heart and you're jealous towards other people and you're angry and you're frustrated and you gripe and complain, and you're bound by these things. James just basically comes out and says, don't, don't deceive yourself, man. You're not free. You're not free. It doesn't matter how many scriptures you memorize. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the church. It doesn't matter what types of good deeds you're doing. You're really not free. And James says, don't make your appeal to how many scriptures you know. Just look at the simple facts. You are living according to an understanding that has actually bound you. And he simply describes it this way. You are actually under some sort of influence that is actually corrosive and destructive to your life. But here's what he finishes the thought by saying, verse 17. But the wisdom but the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So here's what James is going to say. Again, using the terminology and language of sowing and reaping. And he's going to say, those who tap into this wisdom are able to have a harvest of righteousness because they sow it in peace. In other words, they sow in their life various attributes and characteristics, which is very similar to what Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 5 when we spent several weeks looking at what we call the fruit of the Spirit. It's very similar to those things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. All of these things, Paul's going to say that, look, if, if these are the things that are in your life, then they will bring forth some sort of fruit of righteousness in your life, peace in your life. But here's the ultimate final question. I finish with this. Is how do we do this? How do we sow righteousness? How do we as human beings try to sow something that's right? That's ultimately good. Because at the end of the day, even our very best intentions, our best acts, our best actions are somehow commingled with bad motives. It's one of the reasons why Isaiah is going to simply put it this way. All of your righteous works are nothing but filthy rags before God. Paul's going to say this about himself. That all my good works, every good thing I've ever done up until my life of meeting Jesus, every good thing I did, I count as dung. Simply, I just look at it as dung. That's all it is. Filthy rags and dung. So the question is, how do you and I ever tap into this understanding of actually sowing righteousness that will bring about eternal life? And the only answer to that is these are questions that were even raised in the Old Testament. I'll give you for an example, Hosea. God's going to say through Hosea the prophet, he's going to say this, speaking to the people of Israel, because they were in sin, they were basically taking advantage of the poor. In a lot of ways, just like our own culture, things never change. We constantly just jump on this sort of cul-de-sac and we run around as fast as we can. People die, new people take their place. We're just running around this cul-de-sac. Just keep going and going and going. It never changes. God says to his people Israel, 
look, you guys deserve judgment because all you've done is you've taken advantage of the poor. All you've done is mocked my name. All you've done is you've stolen my glory. You've never done anything good for me, for anybody else. You have always done nothing more than self-serving purposes. And God says, you know what you need to do? He says this, Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness and you'll reap mercy. Here's what God says. All that you've sown in your life is deserving of the most profound judgment. And what you need more than anything is mercy. What you need is something to come in and you're not going to ever override the law of sowing and reaping. But God says there are other laws that can override that. Like gravity. It's a law. You jump out of a building, 10 stories high, doesn't matter what you believe or your existential philosophical ideas, doesn't matter how good you feel that day, you will fall 12 stories and probably die unless you have a jetpack on your back, which would be pretty sweet. But the bottom line is this, is that unless something else counteracted or overran the natural law of gravity, you will die. And God says the same, you have all sown unrighteousness, all sown to the flesh, and you will reap judgment. And God says this, sow in righteousness, and you'll reap mercy. We need mercy. All of us need mercy. How did that happen? Why would God throw something out like that without any type of means of connecting it to our lives? And the answer is, is God gives us a hint throughout the Bible. And the hint is that God says, I will create the means and I will create the way whereby you will sow unrighteousness and you will reap favor. You will reap mercy. How? Because Jesus comes and he sows righteousness and he reaps judgment. This is what Isaiah chapter 53 says. Surely he has borne our griefs. Did nothing but righteousness, but he bore Grief wasn't his grief. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He bore our grief. He carried our sorrows. Jesus was always a happy God with God, the Father, God, the Son, in unity, in fellowship, where there's light, there's also joy. Jesus is a joyful God. But then coming into this world, bearing our sin, the Bible describes him as a man of sorrows. Weren't his sorrows? He picked up our sorrows. He says, we esteemed him smitten, stricken by God, afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we were healed. The gospel is that we sowed unrighteousness. We sowed rebellion because of Jesus we reaped favor. In exchange, Jesus sowed righteousness because of our sin. He reaped judgment. This is the door that God's opened up. This is the good news that God throws out to you to say, you will reap what you sow. Either you trust in me for my mercy that I made available through the cross but don't be deceived. You can't continue on a path. These are irrefutable laws. They will never break. They will never change. They have a trajectory. They have a course. You stay on a path of corruption, you will end in the lake of fire. God says, unless you're delivered, I will deliver. I long to deliver. I long to set you free. I long to change you is God's heart. This ultimately is why we love Jesus so much. This is what he did for us. And when we realize what he did for us, the thought of even going back and sowing sinful activities in our lives, why? They just bind us again. Sin oppresses us. Sin's a bad God. Money's not a good God. God's a good God. So the issue is why continue to sow to the flesh? Because what God does now is he gives us a new heart. And therefore, it's like God tapping us into his bank account. So what we have to give away it's not our money. It's not our goods. It's not our righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness that we inherit. Do you get that? 
So the love we give, it's not our love. It's God's love working through us. The peace that we're able to offer other people is not our peace. It's God's peace through us. The money that we're able to give away, we're tapped into God's bank account. We got joint bank account with God. So that means I'm free. I'm capable. I'm able. I've got lots that I can give out because it's not me who's giving it out. It's God. I'm just a steward of it. You get that? This is why we love Jesus. We're going to finish in worship. We're going to sing. We're going to have the guys come on up. And what we're going to do in response, we're going to have an opportunity to give our tithes and our offerings. Again, like I said, if this is not your church, don't feel any obligation to give. If this is your church, I encourage you. Think about how generous are you? Do you give generously? Do you love God? Do you love what God's doing in your life? Do you want to be part of the constant ongoing ministry? That's how it works. God provides, but the way that God provides, the means by which God provides is the generosity of saints like you guys who love God and who are generous. We're going to respond by confessing sin. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I urge you, confess your sin, repent from your sin, call upon Jesus, and he'll wash you, he'll cleanse you. The reality is, in this life, as a Christian, we can make bad choices that will lead to bad reactions. I have literally seen God at times completely reverse the process. Then I've also seen God sometimes allow people, even Christians who have sown bad things, get what they deserved. Although nonetheless, they're with Jesus. They know Jesus. They're transformed with Jesus. Rather than being set free from going to jail, they're doing ministry in jail because they're reaping what they sowed. But by grace, they're washed and cleansed. So for some of us, you need to repent, turn from sin, call upon God. If you're here, you're a Christian, please look at areas in your life, other things that are binding you, that you're bound to, things that you're not free, areas of sin that you've succumbed to, that you've given over to in your life, bad ideas, bad notions, bad concepts, bad theology that has led to restrictiveness whereby you're not free. You're not free to love people. You're not free to engage in the church. You're not free to give money away. You're not free to give your time away. You're not free to serve people that are lesser than you, that don't look like you, don't act like you. You're not free. Please think about that. Bring that to Jesus. We'll partake of communion. It's an opportunity to remind us of what Jesus did for us. I'm going to pray. We'll respond, we'll sing, we'll give, we'll partake of communion. Jesus, thank you for the cross. And Lord, we just humble ourselves before you. We thank you that you're a God that's here right now. You're not far, you're not distant, you're not in some other place. You're here. You're near. You love us. You demonstrated the profound depth of your love through the cross. God, we want to receive that love and trust you for that love.